want to share a few thoughts with us today about the birth of a king. What is the significance of Jesus and Jesus coming to earth? Historically, uh, Christmas season was a sacred feast celebrating the incarnation, what was, which was literally the enfleshment of God Almighty. I think that some of us as Christians in our world perhaps have forgotten the significance of the word incarnation, perhaps just reducing its meaning down to a nativity scene in Bethlehem. But that's understandable because incarnation has to do with becoming flesh. And the birth of Jesus marked the event of God becoming flesh, becoming human. This is so significant because God is not just out there somewhere. He came to earth. He became one of us. It's much bigger than what we think. First, the incarnation refers to not only the birth of Christ, but in reality, it refers to the entire life of Jesus Christ, who tangibly, over three decades, walked the earth. Secondly, Jesus of Nazareth was the incarnation of God. And so when Jesus went public, King Herod well, he was worried that it might be the reincarnation of John the Baptist. He didn't know the half of it. You see, when Christ was born, angelic messengers were dispatched from the throne to announce the arrival of the king. It wasn't just any baby. It was the king of the universe who took upon human flesh. And of course, as we heard read earlier, Luke chapter 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. There's something of the favor of the Lord towards the peoples of the earth, all peoples of the earth, every ethnic group, every tribe, every nation has experienced the favor of the Lord through Christ and through his coming and being birthed as a king. Now, when we think of kings, we think of kingdoms, we think of glory, we think of reigning, we think of authority, we think of power, we think of might, strength. And when we imagine God as king, we proclaim his reign in word and song, just as the multitudes do in the heavenly vision in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. But sometimes we project our most lofty ideas of worldly monarchs onto God and we try to our best to lift them to what we would consider appropriate heights of honor. It's interesting, theologian Karl Barth referred to this phenomenon as defining God as man in capital letters. When Christ is worshipped, crowned, enthroned as king of glory, Majestic in his universal dominion, imagery is drawn from the world of human monarchs. So when we use the metaphor as king, we imagine God is this universal emperor, like the emperor of the universe. We imagine the, a couple of historical emperors, 
Uh, I mean, go back as far in the book of Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar, and you can fast forward to Alexander the Great, and we can picture the Roman Empire. We can picture the Chinese dynasties, the British Commonwealth, and the influence they've had on the world. And yet, all dynasties, all powers of might of an earthly nature will bow. And all of us as humankind will stand before the awesomeness of our Lord and the brightness of his glory. And that's why the scripture says in Romans 14, 11, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. Every knee at some point will willingly bow in submission to the emperor of all and his son, Jesus Christ. But think about this for a moment. We think of God as king of the universe, such a God whom all people answer to is actually quite compelling because we all want a God of might, a God who's powerful and who's in control, right? That's that's what we want to see. Most people think I want my God to be bigger, wiser, and better, and more powerful than any other God because he's my God. And woe to the bully who picks on me because I've put my hope in this warrior king who avenges for me, and he'll deal with the rest. There's something about that that's exhilarating to us. And such glory makes great hymns and great confidence in prayer. Are these descriptions true? Well, yes, of course they are. And the king metaphor reminds us that God, in fact, has the last word. And really it calls us to allegiance, obedience, humility, and surrender. So there's a lot of really good aspects of seeing God in this way. Eusebius thought so. He was the bishop of Caesarea in the 4th century. He's actually been referred to as the father of history. And among his works are the oration in praise of Constantine. This was one of his pieces and he, where he was proclaiming the 13th anniversary of the Christian emperor's reign. Now Constantine showed up on the scene around 300 A.D., uh, before that, and then when his mother became a Christian, he was persuaded. He saw actually changes in her and the influence of her life on other people, and he was persuaded to become a Christian. Interestingly, he stopped the persecution of Christians throughout the Roman Empire, and he opened the prison doors for those who had been unjustly treated for following Christ. The prisons were full of not the hardened criminals, but they were full of bishops and priests and followers of Christ. So this was great liberation to the people of the Roman Empire to, well, for those who had followed Christ. In 13, 313 AD, um, he enforced the Edict of Milan which allowed freedom for all faiths, but in particular allowed for freedom for Christians to worship openly, publicly, and to talk with anyone about Christ. 
During that season, he also called together 1,500 bishops from the east and from the west, and they convened together in the city of Nicene in 325 Idea, and they came to a consensus regarding the fundamental principles of Christianity which defined the nature of God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, and Holy Spirit, and their relationship with one another. It's known as the Nicene Creed. It is standard, it is foundational, fundamental to the Christian faith around the globe and recognized as such. This was Constantine. A lot of good things going on with Constantine. He was determined that the kingdom of God would cover the earth via the imperial might, however, of the Roman Empire. Because he wanted to see every knee bow and every tongue confess willingly or by force Jesus Christ as Lord. His thinking and all of his government officials were along the line of victory through violence, peace via conquest, monarchy through force and coercive power, and rule through decrees and reign as subjugation. And they determined that all of the world needed to become Christian. And so any rebellion or democracy would be squashed by military force for the sake of the expansion of the kingdom of God. Many thought this was surely the way that the world would be won to Christ. If you don't go willingly, by force, you will confess Christ. Because we must expand the kingdom of God. And it was the sincere thought and thinking of Constantine and all of his people. This was an absolute necessity. And it will happen under our rule and under our reign. As a result, wherever the Emperor Constantine marched, well, chaos became peace because they knew they would just better, whether by constraint or willingly, they must confess Christ as Lord or they will die. But as a result, the religion of Christianity spread throughout the known world because all must confess Christ as Lord. And for the historian Eusebius, God's kingdom had come. And he records this. It's, I'm sharing with you some interesting historical perspective. From his perspective, he was rejoicing because God's kingdom had come to earth. And he goes, it's on earth as it is in heaven, just as Jesus taught us to pray. Willingly or by force, you will confess Christ as your Lord. And so Constantine, the earthly emperor, was now an image of the, an agent of the heavenly king. This was the mind, this was the thinking of the people, at least within the Roman Empire. Doesn't it sound marvelous that Christianity had spread? It became the predominant religion of the region. 
wait a moment. Let's pause for a second. Let's remember how Jesus came. Remember the incarnation? It was the almighty creator God who both pre-existed and he actually birthed our whole world. And in a very real sense, where the scripture says that Christ is in all of creation, in one real sense, he has revealed himself through creation. The scriptures teach that so clearly. The Apostle Paul expounds upon it in several passages that how that any person actually could look at creation and behold the creator. So in one sense, he had already come and revealed himself. And then at his birth, as we've been singing about this morning, is where he revealed himself in human flesh. It was not by decrees or by force of might. The shepherds, when they heard the news, they trudged through the night to a tiny village with the smell of barnyard animals. Do you recall the no vacancy sign, the crowded cave? God bursting forth into this dimension from a young virgin's little body. A helpless newborn waiting for his mother's milk. It was God filling his first diaper with meconium. And then God was whisked away by a refugee family, barely escaping the edge of Herod's sword, and they had to go hide out in another land. What an adventure for God. What an adventure for God who is now clothed in human flesh. Here's what I think. God came to earth and revealed himself to humanity in this precise manner intentionally so that we might see the true nature of his being. And how God came itself is an essential revelation of the heart and the nature of the God of the universe, the creator of all things. Thomas F. Torrance, I quote him, he's a scholar, I believe in Edinburgh. God is not one thing himself and another thing in Jesus Christ. What God is toward us in Jesus, he is in Inherently and eternally in himself. Wow, that's powerful. That's really, really powerful because sometimes we can become a bit confused and have some distorted thoughts about God. And the truth is, he is sovereign. The truth is, he is all-powerful. But the truth is, how he rules and reigns is revealed in the incarnation through Jesus Christ, the life of Christ, the teachings of Christ, and the teachings of the New Testament apostles who caught the revelation of Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. On earth as it is in heaven, 
I am compelled to look at how the king of heaven rules and reigns. And it's not like Constantine's perspective, but it's like Jesus of Nazareth. If Jesus is king, he is not like the king we have conceived, perhaps. Remember the baby in a manger in Bethlehem? The servant Christ washing the feet of his, uh, the feet of his disciples? The crucified king hanging there on the cross willingly? It's been said many times that his kingdom is like an upside-down kingdom in contrast to the kings of this world who want to rule by force and make people bow to their wishes or their perceived spiritual awakening and religion. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 25 to 28 it's a beautiful passage of scripture. I love it. Jesus called them together and he said, this is the disciples, and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercised authority over them. Not so with you guys. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was wanting to instill and to part his very nature into these wonderful 12 men. And following Jesus meant rejecting the ways of domination, power, and control, and manipulation as happens with and through worldly kings of every nation. The subversion of worldly kingship is evident from birth to death and through every stage of Christ's life you see it. If we go back and just read the Gospels, read them again, what you see is to where he rules and reigns. By his presence, by his love that captures the human heart that causes us to willingly bow in submission to his lordship. Jesus reveals the power, sovereignty, the victory of God's kingdom, but he always does it through servanthood. Jesus Christ forever redefines our vision of God as king. All of the thoughts I may have had about God over years, I look to Jesus. And the alignment of my heart comes about as I look at his life, listen to him as we see him teaching through scriptures and we listen by the Holy Spirit, we get a beautiful picture of a servant king. In closing this morning, my heart says, and I want to share, 
in this season of Christmas, may we allow Christ the King of the universe to tenderize our hearts with love. And may God release within us the sweetness of his presence of where we have a heart of peace towards every person. Yes, those who may consider you an enemy, those who have wronged us, those with whom we have issues. I pray that in this Christmas season that God will do such a beautiful work in my heart, in your heart, our hearts. And imagine if this were to happen in the whole world. Everything would change. If we experienced his love, his servant heart, and this would become a part of our lives, our cities would change for the better. Our states, our nation, the nations of the world. The extension of God's kingdom is happening. And it is happening as the Holy Spirit touches hearts this day and throughout every day of the week. And our prayer is, is that light would shine through the, into the darkness of our own hearts and souls. That inhibit us that restrict us from personally experiencing and walking in the fullness of his glory. We see in part, we experience in part, but in Christmas 2021, let's make it our prayer that the fullness of God's glory will become more real to us than ever before. I want to invite you to stand with me. Let's just bow our heads for a moment and reflect upon the birth of this king, King Jesus, who made it possible for us to experience peace through his humility and through his servant spirit. What if we just were all to just in our own hearts, quietly between us and God, say, God, let, let the spirit of Christ move in my own heart. Help us to forgive, Lord, those that we have felt offended by. And we say, forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We ask that your love would just overwhelm us. And that we would, in this Christmas season, afresh and anew, and perhaps to greater depths and heights than ever before, experience the joy of your salvation and find our hearts more passionately in love with you and in turn in love with all people. And I wonder if we could pray this prayer together. Let's pray this prayer together. Okay? God, in this Christmas season of 2021, forgive me for any form of thinking and living in a manner that does not show humility and the servant spirit of Jesus Christ. May my heart become more fully conformed to the likeness of our eternal God and King, 
Jesus Christ, my Lord. I rejoice in the ever-present working of Holy Spirit that releases righteousness, peace, and joy. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.